welcome to our new podcast, Show Me Archaeology. This podcast seeks to share archaeological work that helps us better understand and connect with the people and places that have shaped our society today. I'm your host, Missouri Humanities Archaeologist Erin Whitson. Our guest for this episode is Maxwell Fortin. Max originally hails from Michigan, but has been working in the southwestern United States for the last few years as an archaeologist with the National Park Service at Petrified Forest National Park. He's worked at several other national parks and national forests across several states, including Coronado National Forest and Navajo National Monument in Arizona, Chaco Culture National Historic Park and Aztec Ruins National Monument in New Mexico, and he's worked at Bears Ears National Monument in Utah. Beyond those very cool opportunities, he's also successfully helped run several field schools has worked as a contract archaeologist and is currently a PhD candidate at Binghamton University in upstate New York. Max identifies as a Southwestern archaeologist and is skilled in field methods instruction, rock art recording, uh, report writing, and archaeological survey. Some of his research interests include iconography studies, landscape archaeology, and public lands history. Max is also Pecos Conference's 2018 Cordell Prize winner for the project he's about to tell us about today. Welcome, Max. Thanks for making time in your probably very hectic schedule to talk with us. Uh, thank you, Erin. Uh, thank you for that very generous introduction. It's a pleasure to be uh, speaking with you today. Thanks. So before we really get going on your project, would you talk to us a bit about the Southwest? Why do you like it? What's special about it archaeologically? Um, sure. So uh, kind of the, south, the Southwest, uh, it differs, probably every person will tell you a different answer of where, what actually is the Southwest. Um, for me, the Southwest is the four corner states of uh, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, and Utah. And uh, you could throw in a little bit of Southern Nevada, maybe a tiny bit of uh, Southern California and West Texas in there, um, kind of that broader region is the uh, culturally the Southwest. Specifically, though, I tend to work most around uh, the Four Corners region itself. New Mexico, Colorado, Arizona, and Utah all, all meet um, in an area called the Colorado Plateau. And when people think of the Southwest, um, I feel they uh, often have just uh, imagined some more cactuses and just kind of a lifeless desert. In fact, the Southwest is a really um, uh, really diverse in its habitats. We have mountains, we have rivers, um, forests. Um, I currently live in Flagstaff, which is all a Ponderosa forest. It's really beautiful. Um, and yes, we do have deserts, but even those deserts themselves um, are really diverse. And where first the Sonoran Desert is very different than the high desert um, where I work uh, most of the time. Um, just very diverse in its different plants and animals and the people that have called uh, uh, these areas home. Um, so it's a, just a very beautiful place um, to, to work. And there's a really deep and a diverse history. A lot, a lot of different uh, groups of people have come through and uh, called uh, these places home. And it's a, it's a real privilege and honor to be able to uh, study the human history of this uh, of this region. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's very different from Michigan, um, where I'm originally from, which is one of the reasons I think I like it so much. Um, we don't have too many mountains and certainly no deserts in Michigan. Uh, so it's, it's, 
it's, it's great every day just to be working in such an amazing, amazing places. I understand that don't, as an archaeologist in the Southwest, there's not a, not always a lot of digging in what you do. Is that correct? Um, so yeah, so the Southwest is a bit unique in the sense that often when we go looking for archaeological sites, we can identify them by looking at artifacts that are just out on the surface. So in Missouri and other parts of the country, when you are surveying, going out and looking for archaeological sites, you have to uh, do what's called an STP, a shovel test pit, where you dig a small hole in the ground. If you don't find any artifacts, you go a certain number of meters away, dig another hole, and kind of do these lines of holes until if you find an artifact, then you do some holes around that discovery and see if there's more artifacts. Um, we typically don't have to do that in the Southwest. We're geologically here, um, sediments tend to not um, bury artifacts as deeply or, um, uh, or as they do um, in other areas of the country. Whereas here we can find artifacts often just on the surface. Um, that being said, we still do have to do excavation. Um, we might find archaeological, be able to find archaeological sites by just uh, doing um, a surface survey. But um, if that uh, archaeological site is then being threatened or in an area where there's going to be uh, construction, um, we then have to do further actual excavations in order to recover artifacts, recover data, um, in order to mitigate any impact that would come to that um, archaeological site. So there are still very active excavations going on, especially uh, in Tucson and Phoenix, these rapidly growing cities. Um, there's pretty much always an archaeological excavation going on because, fun fact, people have liked living in these places for thousands and thousands of years. And so pretty much anytime you're going to be doing a major construction project, major uh, infrastructure project in one of these places, you're going to hit archaeology. And so uh, pretty much there's always going to be excavations going on in some of uh, the cities in the Southwest. But um, often where I work though for the on public lands, National Park Service, National Forest Service, where uh, we aren't typically doing a ton of construction, um, we're more focused on identifying, finding archaeological sites. And we can do that by just uh, systematically moving across the landscape and looking for artifacts just on the surface. So I just laid out a long list of places that you've worked on public lands. Could you talk to us uh, a second about what it's like being an archaeologist for the federal government? Um, what's a day in the life of Max Fortin like? Sure. Well, it's um, most days it's really great. Um, I've uh, had the privilege, like you said, of working in a number of uh, National Park Service units and um, for the National Forest Service at uh, Coronado National Forest, which is in very southern Arizona. Um, most days, um, well, it can be really, really very in um, what I do day to day as a, as a federal archaeologist. Um, we talked about um, how uh, doing survey in the Southwest, um, moving across the landscape to look for artifacts or um, archaeological features um, um, on the surface. That is a very big part of our job. Most um, national parks, especially the larger ones like the Petrified Forest where I currently work, most of them haven't been systematically entirely surveyed. 
there's often huge parts of the park that have we really don't know too much about what there is there archaeologically they're kind of big blank spots on the map um and so there's always um kind of more to find more to explore to find archaeological sites because uh no, one of the decisions the Park Service has to make is how to treat certain sections of the landscape. Is this an area that's sensitive, that, um, you know, biologically, culturally, that we kind of want to limit the number of visitors that can come into this area? Or is this an area that we want to open up for um, more hiking, recreation? Um, before those decisions can be made, um, archaeologists have to determine what sites, if any, are here. And if so, how would they be impacted by recreationists or um, for the Forest Service, um, where there's multiple types of activities going on, like logging or mineral, mineral extraction, in addition to recreation. Um, how would uh, any of those uh, activities uh, impact archaeological sites? You know, so we kind of have to first determine what's, what's here, what types of sites, how many, um, and then can, decisions can be made over, okay, how do we want to treat uh, this landscape? Um, so survey is a huge part of um, most federal archaeologist jobs. Um, additionally, um, there's things, uh, a thing called a condition assessment, which is essentially a welfare check on a site. So at Petrified Forest alone, we have over 1,200 archaeological sites, and only may maybe a third of the park has been surveyed. So that'll give you perspective of uh, how many more archaeological sites there are out there to find. But among those uh, sites we do have documented, um, the landscape is constantly changing. There's rain, there's water, there's visitors coming through. Um, and those all have the potential of changing an archaeological site. And so we have to uh, routinely go out to these sites and see, has there been any change? Has Know, say a new wash developed and cut through the site exposing new artifacts or have people come to the site and start making trails through it or uh, um, god forbid uh, done some vandalism um, these are the sort of things we have to look for when we go to these sites and then document and then make decisions over how then best to preserve the site um, so condition assessments those are very important aspect and a bit, something we're constantly doing um, at Petrified Forest and other parks. Um, there's preservation work that we do. Um, at Petrified Forest, we have multiple historic buildings, uh, many from the Civilian Conservation Corps. We also have partially reconstructed um, um, pueblos. Um, these are dwellings, homes that were occupied uh, over 600 years ago. Um, by uh, Puebloan peoples. These uh, sites, the, um, these structures, you know, they're constantly being exposed to the elements. And just like how you have to constantly uh, um, keep your house up to shape, do repairs, we have to do repairs on these um, historic structures. Um, so assessing the condition of um, structures, historic buildings in the park, and then um, figuring out best ways to uh, mitigate any damage or repairs. That's another aspect um, that we're often doing. Um, what else? Um, we do work with the public. We work with interpretation in order to coordinate with um, uh, them to best uh, educate the public. Um, so it really varies day to day. And then there's constantly stuff just being dropped on our desk of uh, um, 
new uh, projects they're happy in the park. Say they want to put in a new trail system into a new area of the park. Um, before they can even begin to think about breaking ground, we have to first survey that area to see are there archaeological sites in this area? Would they be impacted by, say, this new trail that's going in? And if so, how do we make sure they aren't damaged? Do we reroute the trail or um, make sure we put up edu maybe educational signs saying like, hey, this is a culturally sensitive area. Please uh, don't um, you know, just destroy or damage or vandalize uh, the archeology span that's here. Or do we say, you know what? There's too much uh, fragile sites here, too many fragile archeological uh, resources we can't have this trail here, or we recommend that this trail not be here. So there's always um, kind of anytime there's going to be ground being broken within the, the park, um, we have to be there to uh, monitor, to survey, um, in order to make sure that archaeological resources are, are protected. Do you work with tribes when you do that sort of work, or is that? Um, we do. So cool. fun fact, important fact, um, archaeological resources, which uh, legally are defined as uh, anything, uh, any artifacts or sites that are over 50 years old, that's the threshold you have to meet to be an archaeological site, um, at least federal, uh, legally. Um, th those are all protected on um, federal public lands. So any archaeological site on National Park Service land, Forest Service land, uh, Bureau of Land Management land. Um, you can't just go in and start pocketing artifacts or dig up a site. And that includes, that goes for scientists. Um, you know, if I'm a researcher at a university, I can't just go into petrified forests and say, hey, I'm going to start up a dig or, you know, I'm just going to take these uh, artifacts and take them back to my lab. You can't do that. There's a very long permitting process in order to to do that, um, do any research, and certainly uh, just uh, outright looting is uh, forbidden on uh, federal lands. Um, so that's all just to protect archaeological resources, to protect these cultural, um, this cultural heritage, this history on our public lands. Um, so as a result of that, though, um, one of the things whenever uh, a, a large project, really any project, happens within the park that may impact um, the um, impact archeological sites tied to um, descendant indigenous communities. Um, we, fed, we legally have to contact them and let them know of here are the archeological sites that we have identified um, that might be impacted by this project. So say, let's go back to that scenario of, we wanna put in a new trail, but um, this trail, it's gonna go by some some petroglyph sites, which we'll talk about later um, with my research. Some petroglyph sites, these um, ancient um, or, um, these this imagery that uh, was made by the ancestors of Native American communities in the Southwest uh, a thousand years ago. Uh, this trail is going to go by here. The this site, um, we let the tribes know. We have identified this archaeological site. Here's what it is. Here's what the impact of this project would be. This trail would go near it. And then they have the, um, the right then to make a decision of whether, great, that's fine. Um, go ahead with the trailer. Actually, no, that's a very culturally sensitive site, we believe. We want to come visit it first. 
And then um, they can then say, no, we don't want this trail to go through or give it the thumbs up or say, actually, we want, we, the trail can still happen, but we have to do some mitigating efforts first, maybe put up a sign saying like, don't climb on the petroglyphs or something to the effect of, uh, um, or doing something else that would uh, mitigate um, any damage that could be done. So really, yes, tribes um, have a direct say in uh, works that is done on public lands. Um, and uh, anytime we do a, do a, a project or uh, do survey, do excavation for a project, um, tribes are notified um, and uh, have a say in the process. Um, so I briefly mentioned landscape archaeology and some folks might not know what that is. Could you quickly like explain what that might be? Yeah, so landscape archaeology is um, looking at archaeological sites uh, within not just the individual site, but looking at its larger context. Archaeologists, we love context. It's kind of our bread and butter. Um, context being kind of all the associated features, all the associated um, aspects of the landscape, kind of everything that's tied into um, an artifact, a site um, that gives it meaning. So one of the reasons why we discourage people so much from taking our artifacts off of sites is it loses that context. <coughs> um, excuse me. So if uh, someone just brings me uh, um, a stone tool, an arrowhead, and says, hey, I found this. What can you tell me about? I might be able to tell you, like, well, the style of it, it's might probably comes from this region. It might be about this old, but I really can't tell you too much because I don't know where exactly it came from. And even if they say, oh, well, it came from this this field over here and that's like okay that's better but like do you know where on um like where in this field it came from because um even if i know where on what archaeological site an artifact came from uh, i can learn so much more by knowing where it is on the site was this artifact in a trash pile is it within the remains of a house is it associated with some more religious or a ceremonial structure um you know, kind of depending on where it's found within one of those features um, is going to really uh, impact how we see uh, its use or its history or what, what it was used for. Um, you know, we something that's for, like for a more modern analogy, you know, if we were to find something in a house, um, it's going to, we're going to have a very different interpretation than the, of it than being found, like say in a church or in a trash, in, you know, in a dump. Um, no, those are all three very different locations. And um, archaeologically, knowing where an artifact came from on a site is uh, very, very important for us to um, understanding its history and to rebuilding, rebuilding uh, a sense of what was happening on this archaeological site. So that's why context is so important. It really helps preserve um, archaeological data. Um, landscape archaeology is taking that context and then building it out onto a much larger, larger scale and saying like, okay, we don't wanna just look at this one archeological site. We wanna see how is this archeological site 
fit into the larger picture. Um, so one ana uh, analogy I use with my students is often um, I feel archaeologists can sometimes get tunnel vision just on this one archaeological site. And that's like looking at one house in the neighborhood. It's like, yeah, you could learn a lot about this people, this community from one house, but not everyone's house is going to be the same. We're all different. Um, you know, this one house, uh, they might practice one religion, but their neighbors might practice a completely different religion. Or um, this house, like, yeah, there's kind of lower socioeconomic, but you know what? The house at the end of the lane, they're very well off. Um, and by focusing on just one site or even just a few sites, um, we tend to uh, lose the bigger picture of what makes up the community. So instead of looking at one house, we want to look at the entire neighborhood. Um, and beyond just looking at archaeological sites and how they all interact with each other, we want to look at um, the landscape itself. Like, how is this? How do these people um, were their lives impacted by the environment, by um, different features on the landscape, uh, the presence of like rivers or mountains or um, different resources? Did these people live here because uh, they had good farmland, or was it because they were close to um, a very important ceremonial site or? Um, a feature on the landscape, like I say, a mountain that they considered sacred. Um, these are all different um, aspects of their lives that might have uh, impacted why they chose to live where they live. Um, so as a landscape archaeologist, we're looking at not just one site, we're looking at the sites across the landscape, where are they being put? Yeah, specifically understanding why people were living where they were living, what what they were do, why were they choosing to do certain things in these places very cool <clears throat> so what are some of the challenges or the dangers of doing the work that you do in this part of the world uh, are there special <laughs> things that you have to take into account before going out into the field or um so luckily um um as i would tell pretty much any visitor you know as long as you uh, are prepared um you really shouldn't have too much trouble um, it's very hot in the Southwest, even uh, where I live, uh, more in the Northern Southwest, it's, uh, still gradually gets into triple digits and doing work in the Southern Southwest. Um, you're getting up to, you know, well over 110, even up to 120 if you're working in Phoenix. Um, so be prepared to be, it's going to be hot. It's going to be sunny and, um, and petrified forest, you really don't have much shade. Um, so make sure you're wearing a big, uh, a big hat, big brim, um, and cover, you know, get sunscreen, cover, you know, wear long sleeve clothing. Uh, sunburn is probably the, the biggest uh, challenge we, we, <laughs> we face on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, surveying, though, you know, essentially we're hiking across the landscape. And so you run into any of the challenges that you get when, if you go kind of off trail, uh, um, backcountry hiking, um, we have to worry about snakes. We have, uh, Arizona is the state with the most number of rattlesnakes. We've got rattlesnakes, scorpions, uh, tarantulas, which again, they are definitely more afraid of you than you are of them. They will definitely, uh, let you be, um, you just gotta be watch where you're putting your feet, watch where you're putting your hands. And luckily rattlesnakes are very polite. And as they have that rattle, they let you know they're there. I've uh, only known one archeologist in the Southwest who was actually bitten by a rattlesnake. 
Um, other than that, we have to watch the weather. Flash flooding is uh, definitely a thing that happens here. Um, we have get summer monsoons. We don't get a ton of rain overall, but when we do, it comes down in buckets in summer monsoons. And uh, especially if you're working in canyons, uh, you got to be wary of um, where you're camping. Don't want your, uh, your campsite swept away. Um, but yeah, overall, it's uh, as long as you're prepared, um, know and, and know what you're doing you don't usually run into any problems i mean we have bears we have mountain lions but again they're going to most of the time leave you alone um no very few people have ever actually had too many problems with critters um so um yeah it, it's overall a pretty great place to work as long as you can uh, deal with the heat and uh you know you, you're become prepared now that we've got a little bit of the context, which is our, I guess, vocabulary word of the day, um, could you give us a little bit of background information about your your project? What what's your project about? Um, yeah, so this was a fun project um, I did. <coughs> excuse me. Um, I did a couple of years ago um, that I started um, actually all the way back in 2017 when I was working at Navajo National Monument. Navajo National Monument is a pretty small national park unit that's um, located right in the heart of the Navajo Nation, um, northern Arizona, nearest town is uh, Cayenta, which is uh, near Monument Valley, which some people might have uh, know about or gone through. Um, it's a very tiny little national park unit that protects um, three large cliff dwellings. And so cliff dwellings, um, if people have been to Mesa Verde, uh, you're familiar with them, these are large, structures, um, um, communities that were built into the cliffside, into these alcoves or kind of shallow caves um, in the canyon walls um, of the northern southwest. And these were made by the ancestors of multiple communities across, or multiple uh, indigenous communities in the southwest, uh, the Hopi, Zuni, um, Acoma, uh, other uh, Puebloan communities um, in New Mexico along the Rio Grande. Um, these uh, are the descendants of um, the people who built these uh, cliff dwellings. And these cliff dwellings were built um, in mostly the AD 1200s. So you're looking at oh, over, 700, uh, over 700 years ago um, to 800 years ago. And uh, they vary in size to just like small, like one family units to incredibly huge um, hundreds of rooms, um, structures built into these cliff sides. So they kind of, some of them kind of look like castles. Um, they definitely have a defensive or at least some of them have a very defensive aura. Uh, these people are living on cliff edges and these are masonry structures. Um, they aren't using um, Adobe that um, they're typically uh, made with a, a local sandstone that's a uh, shaped into blocks and then plastered over to make these structures. And um, yeah, at Navajo National Monument, the uh, Park Service preserves three of these um, cliff dwellings all dating from what we call the Pueblo III period and specifically the late Pueblo III period. And that's um, AD uh, 12, yeah, 1200 to 1300. Um, 
the three cliff dwellings are Keatseal, which is the largest cliff dwelling in Arizona. Um, don't quote me on this, but I believe it's the second largest in the, maybe third largest in the Southwest. Uh, Mesa, uh, Mesa Verde Cliff Palace is the largest and Spruce Treehouse might be second largest. But Keatseal is definitely one of the largest in the Southwest. And then there's also Patodican, um, which is the easiest to go visit. Um, and then there's Inscription House, which is uh, unfortunately closed to the public, has been closed since the 1960s because uh, due to its fragility. Um, but the public, um, everybody can go to Keatseal and Batakin. Batakin can be viewed from an overlook down into the canyon very easily. Um, and also can, you can um, sign up to go on a guided hike down into the canyon to visit Batakin, both with a ranger-led hike um, which is super fun, very, very cool to do. Um, uh, Keat Seal, though, is, uh, requires a bit of a hike. It's about, I believe, 14, 15 miles round trip. Um, most people do an overnight backpacking trip to it. Um, you need a permit to do it, um, which, and it's only open for visitation, I believe, from maybe May through September. So unfortunately, during the hottest time of the year, so definitely bring a lot of water. But um, it's a really fun hike to do. And um, yeah, hiking through beautiful, uh, the beautiful Segi Canyon system up uh, to Keatsio, which is this gigantic uh, cliff dwelling uh, built into this huge alcove. Um, it's really, really uh, quite the sight to see. Um, so those are the three um, cliff dwellings that are preserved at Navajo National Monument. And um, while I was working there, I became interested in um, a particular uh, um, type of rock imagery that we found at that is found at some of the cliff dwellings in this area, um, specifically the depiction of large shields. And when I say shields, I am talking about like the shield, you, you know, warfare shield you wear on your arm. Um, uh, and specifically uh, at some of these cliff dwellings, uh, images of these sh large round shields would be painted. Um, uh, high on the cliff face, usually very, very visible, you know, meant to be seen, and uh, placed specifically on the right side of the cliff dwelling. So say you're approaching this community, you see this huge uh, <coughs> uh, cliff dwelling perched up on this very hard to access ledge, and then on the right side, you have this large uh, painted, very bright, um, image of a shield. And uh, shields um, are, aren't really seen in um, the Southwest um, in um, rock imagery in, um, until about this time. Um, so kind of the same time people are moving up into cliff drawings is the same time you start to see the depiction of uh, this uh, shields. So it's, I'd like to say they're moving, it's like defensive sites with defensive imagery. Um, before that, um, most pre people are living in uh, called like surface pueblos, essentially pictured like a, an apartment room, um, like a row of, of, of apartments, called room blocks. So kind of each family has one or two rooms and uh, those rooms are all connected together. So it's pictured just like a like row of apartments. Um, and these are located not up in cliffs, but just uh, you know, on top of the mesa or just out on the flatlands. Um, people are still living those at this time, the 1200s, but um, 
it definitely seems to be, particularly in, um, around the Four Corners region, a shift into these cliff dwellings. And uh, we can get maybe get into a bit later of why people were doing this. But um, yeah, at Navajo National Monument, uh, there seems to be a focus on not only making the shield imagery, but be having it put on the right side of uh, right side of uh, these cliff dwellings. And um, there are additional cliff dwellings in the uh, canyon system around um, Navajo National Monument. They're just not within the national park land. They're on the land of the Navajo Nation. Um, and so I had read references to that fact that there were these shield imagery here and that they seem to be on the right side, which struck me as interesting. And I wondered, uh, is this true at other places in the Southwest? I knew there were shields being painted at other sites in the Southwest, but uh, I hadn't seen any references to um, there being a very specific pattern of where they're being put on the site. And so I kind of, my research goals uh, evolved into determining um, is there specific spatial patterning to where shields are being placed at other cliff dwelling, uh, other cliff dwelling sites? Or is it seemed, is this kind of a unique thing to the Sagi Canyon cliff dwellings around Navajo National Monument? And if so, uh, why is that? What, what could be the reasoning for that? Um, so those are kind of the research goals that uh, came out of uh, um, working there. So how did you go about doing the project? How did you? Um, so I love lab hiking, which luckily I love. <laughs> um, I, I got, uh, I was very, very fortunate and um, grateful to receive uh, permits from the Navajo Nation um, to go visit these other cliff dwelling sites um, within the Sagi Canyon system. So um, I already knew that there was a cliff, the cliff dwelling at Batakin has one of these large shields. And so just to describe it to you, it's larger than life size. Um, it's just, oh. So are we talking like bigger than a person? Are we talking? Um, it's about maybe a, not quite a meter across. So very large. About three so, feet then? Yeah, about three feet, um, maybe even a bit bigger. Um, I never actually got up to, to be able to measure it, but um, very large, they were meant to be seen, which um, we can, we'll go into why I think, uh, or why we, think that was very intentional for them to be made this large and vibrant and it's a uh, the one at the is of a it's painted white with this white uh, clay um, paint um, and within the shield is a figure with raised arms and uh, there's been a lot of uh, speculation over what this uh, this figure this personages personage within this shield might represent um, but uh, yeah, having this large uh, figure within this shield um, painted this very bright white. Um, another sh um, shield is also within, um, uh, found not at Keats Shield, but at um, an adjacent site to it. So part of, still part of probably the larger community at Keats Shield. Um, there's a very, very, very faded shield that it took me a few times to actually find it. Um, it that it's faded so much of, uh, similar white, large white circle that has a kind of a mask-like face set into it. So those are two that I already knew about and are within the national, um, within the national monument. But, are they um, usually white like that or are they a mix of colors? Um, so that's, um, 
Another interesting, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, the ones at Navajo National Monument overall and within the Sege Canyon system were painted with this white, I believe it's kaolinite um, clay. Um, but other areas that I went and looked at, um, you do get other colors. Um, huh. Is that, but, I mean, is there, does anyone have ideas why that, that is, or is it just? Um, that would be, um, that'd be definitely a kind of further launching off point to further research to do, huh. which I, I think I maybe alluded to in my article I eventually published, but it definitely uh, is an avenue for further research over whether there's a correlation with color with different um, different communities or groups of communities that might have allied with each other. Um, but within the Saigi Canyon um, itself, I was able to get permits from uh, Navajo Nation to come and uh, visit uh, other sites within uh, the canyon system, other cliff dwellings, and confirm sites that did have uh, additional shields and confirm were they being placed on the right-hand side. And overall, um, yes, they're very consistently being put on the right-hand side. I think I had a total of nine sites in total um, that were, uh, they were all placed on the right side, which seems to be a very deliberate, consistent pattern. Um, it's not a matter of visibility. They could have easily put them in the middle of the, of the site, like directly above the cliff dwellings or on the left side. Um, no, it's not a matter of like, oh, we can't do it there. It's not accessible. It's like, no, these sites, they could have put them anywhere, but they very consistently, deliberately, it seems, put them on the right side of uh, the cliff dwelling, a very uh, consistent pattern. So do you have an explanation as to why? Because that's... Well, so my next step of the research was then to see, okay, I've confirmed that, yes, there does seem to be a pattern here at uh, Navajo National Monument in this area of these communities seem to always put their shields on the right side. Was that happening in other areas though? Or is this unique to this canyon system, this group of, uh, of uh, ancestral Puebloans? Um, and so then my next, uh, step was to go and visit other cliff dwellings in other regions of the uh, of the uh, northern southwest. And so I've also at the time was doing some work at Canvache, which has multiple very large uh, cliff dwellings. And um, I was able to uh, visit some sites there and uh, do some archival research to find um, depictions of shields at others. Um, and then I did some work in south southern Utah um, with cliff dwellings in the Bears Ears National Monument area and in the Eastern Canyonlands region, which is uh, up around more Moab and Canyonlands National Park. So kind of these different areas, they're all still part of the same larger culture of ancestral Pueblo, but uh, they all do have kind of their own regional variation. So just how like, yes, we're all Americans within the United States, but we all have our regional identities. We all come from different states. So within, yes, these are all part of the same ancestral Pueblo culture, but there definitely are, uh, you might speak a different language or make different, uh, make your pottery a different way or build your home a different way, depending on where you are, where you, what, uh, which of these regions you came from. Um, so we already know uh, <coughs> there are some differences um, between these communities. But uh, looking at the, shields found in these regions, I was looking like, all right, 
are they also being always put on the right hand side or does say uh does canvas shade do they always put it on the left side um and what i found is pretty much all these other regions they have no consistency in where they're pointing their shields other than they're almost always very visible and um put in a very uh, high place um how high usually are they um so cliff drawings uh i mean they're some of them are very i mean they're hundreds of feet um off the off the ground um there's one and um um, in Segi Canyon that uh, an early archaeologist had written, it would take a human fly to climb up into this. Um, they're just, some of them are very, very precarious. Some of them um, I, I couldn't get into. I, and, uh, you would need professional rock climbing to repel into them, but Which luckily you could still see the shields. Wild, because um, I mean, that means that someone did it without professional rock That's climbing. right. And um, um, they, we know they made ladders and um, they built, they packed uh, hand and footholds into the rock face to be able to climb up into uh, some of these places. But uh, it was definitely uh, not an easy place uh, to build a home. Um, so, I mean, you're talking about a period where people are freaking out, it sounds like, you, you know, like this yeah, sounds so, like not an easy thing to, a way no, to live. So. Not, not an easy, not a convenient place to live. Um, and, I think it's not a coincidence that you see the construction construction of such very de seeming defensive architecture, defensive communities, um, and the introduction of this shield imagery. Um, we know shields have been around for a while in the Southwest. Um, there's uh, there was a shield recovered from a burial at Aztec ruins, which is in uh, north uh, western New Mexico, which was not built by the Aztecs. I need to clarify. It was only called Aztec ruins because the first uh, Anglo settlers that came into the area uh, did, did not think that the local um, Native American communities could have built these gigantic uh, structures, this monumental architecture. And so thought it had to have been done by the Aztecs, which is a very unfortunate uh, and consistent pattern that you see in kind of American archeology span is often uh, Native communities are uh, deprived of uh, th their own heritage and assume that no, they, they couldn't have built it. When in fact, yes, they, their ancestors did build these places, and as the Aztecs were never in directly within the Southwest, um, don't even date to the same time period. Um, that being said. Um, um, Going back to, yes, a shield was found at Aztec that dates to around, I believe, 80, 1,000, maybe 1,100. So the shields have been around for a while, but it's only once people are moving into these defensive cliff dwellings that you start seeing them being put very prominently um, on, uh, on canyon walls, um, usually painted, but you do get some that are packed um, packed in, um, into the rock face. Um, and I should say, um, when I talk about, um, when we talk about these shields, there's only been, there aren't a ton that have been recovered archeologically. They're very, very rare. Um, the shields are essentially a baskets. Uh, picture a large basket that's uh, made by uh, made uh, by the coil method of uh, these kind of large coil baskets that were been strapped onto the arm. Um, 
and uh, maybe most some of them, we, yeah, the ones we have recovered were painted. So maybe this large, essentially basket you wore on your arm, brightly painted. <laughs> um, it wouldn't be until uh, much later um, that uh, there'd be increased uh, trade with groups from the plains that you start seeing buffalo hide shields within the Southwest. But during this time period, uh, there, we haven't recovered any buffalo hide shields. Um, and so essentially it's just a large basket that you're wearing on your arm and um, would have been, yeah, used to fend off blows from clubs and uh, potentially uh, used to fend off uh, projectiles like arrows or stones. Um, and potentially some of them might have been used more in ceremonial purposes or mock fighting. Um, so we only have a few actually recovered shields, but um, we do know that they did actually exist. And from these shields, we know, that's how we uh, make the interpretation that these images are there on these cliff dwellings are in fact shields. Um, yeah, so you get defensive imagery at these defensive sites at this time. Why are people freaking out about this? Or why are people moving into these spaces? Well, it's probably a time of, we believe a very much of a great social upheaval. Um, in the Northern Southwest, um, before this time, kind of one of the larger potentially unifying forces was uh, uh, this major cultural center at Chaco Canyon, which uh, is preserved today at Chaco as Chaco Canyon um, National Historical Park. Um, amazing, beautiful place. Um, gigantic uh, monumental architecture preserved there, a major cultural center that uh, seemingly unified a large portion of the population in the Northern Southwest, not everybody, um, but a large portion of the Southwest, uh, Northern Southwest into uh, some sort of cultural system or belief system. We aren't sure exactly what it was that Chaco was selling that so many people bought into. There's a lot of debate over that or in debate over how centralized power was at Chaco. Like was some people, some researchers go so far as to say as essentially was like a kingdom um, with all of these kind of satellite communities that were kind of under its sway. Other people see it um, more as a pilgrimage center, religious center. So picture kind of more of a Vatican or a Mecca where uh, groups are coming in. Um, other people see it as it's not, doesn't really hold much sway People might have been inspired by it, but uh, it really didn't have any much direct control over outlying communities. Um, but regardless, it seems people were unified under some sort of shared ideas, be that religion or uh, some sort of belief system that uh, cut across probably languages and different cultural groups um, within the Northern Southwest. Um, by the 1200, pretty much Chaco is done. Uh, whatever uh, Chaco was selling, whatever ideas were unifying, people have uh, lost faith in it. And uh, once you kind of lose that central pillar unifying people, um, there tends to be then a lot of uh, social upheaval. And people are dividing and uh, um, yeah, just less uh, unity. And this coincides with a large drought that was happening at this time, which uh, droughts has happened in the Southwest before, um, but, uh, and people have weathered them, but uh, without the, this unifying um, 
you know, people uh, being united under this banner of Chaco, um, it seems people weren't able, didn't have the so social infrastructure to uh, weather this drought this time. And uh, there was, uh, yeah, some definitely some fighting, some violence. And uh, more than that, more, I think it was the fear of violence. There probably wasn't a ton of actual instances of, um, of violence happening, but it only takes one instance to like freak, freak people out. To, uh, you know, if you hear like, oh, this community, uh, you know, a few valleys over, uh, some really bad stuff happened to them. We don't want that to happen to us. We're going to move up into this cliff dwelling. And even the communities that aren't in cliff dwellings, that are still stay, stay in the surface unit Pueblo, uh, aggregated Pueblos, uh, they're putting walls up around themselves or they're putting building at the head of canyons, which uh, are much more defensible. Um, so it's very much, it seems people are, uh, are scared. They're moving into defensive positions. They're uh, very much guarding the resources that they have. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, they're probably really kind of reeling, searching for wondering what's coming next. And uh, very interestingly, um, people come to places like Navajo or Mesa Verde and say these amazing, gigantic, um, monumental structures that uh, are a real testament to the ingenuity and uh, um, hard work uh, that of these people to build these spaces. Um, they were only lived in for a few generations. Um, most of them, yeah, were occupied for less than 100 years. Um, so it's really, I mean, some of the kind of more famous archaeological sites in the Southwest were only occupied for a real kind of blip of time in the greater scheme of things. So things um, calm down and people are like, this is too much work getting up here. I'm done. But more um, probably people. So there are like, there are other people in the Southwest. I mean, the, um, this is just one corner of the Southwest and there are people further South, um, um, kind of a more central Arizona or southern Arizona or along the Rio Grande River mm. in uh, Mexico. There are communities established there. And what we believe uh, happened is uh, eventually, yeah, either conditions got too bad, whether that be uh, um, climate conditions, like we can't grow crops here anymore, or it's like, is this too hanky? Uh, people are, it's too dangerous to live here anymore socially. Um, people, migrate out of the Four Corners region and into uh, head south um, into um, southern Arizona or into uh, central Arizona or to the Rio Grande region of uh, central uh, New Mexico. And eventually these people um, form the communities, the Pueblo communities that uh, uh, we know today. Uh, so these do they, people- Do they remember? I mean, do they have- um... Yeah, so we do have oral traditions. Um, so the uh, Pueblo people and all the people, um, indigenous communities in the Southwest, none of them have had a written language, um, but um, they have very, very, very strong oral traditions. And so we have stories of uh, some often attributed to these places um, in certain, particularly um, uh, doing my research here, I read about um, how the Hopi have um, clan stories, migration stories of different clans that once lived at Keatsil or Batadakan, um, these places, and 
lived here for a while, but then before moving on um, to uh, other communities, um, particularly, uh, there are very particularly strong oral traditions to uh, talk about migration stories of where different clans, different peoples moved um, across the Southwest and uh, the different clans they encountered on uh, their journeys. Um, so yeah, we have uh, direct oral traditions describing uh, uh, some of these places and uh, the people that moved through them, built them, lived in them, and then eventually uh, um, moved on to uh, move to uh, form different communities. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Um, have I mean, so you found with your work, you found that these field or these shield figures seem to emerge about the same time. All these people are freaking out and living up in these really defensive structures um are there do the native folks there out that direction today do they have stories about these shield figures at all or do they um so not a ton per pertaining to particular shield figures the one that Batakin, which i mentioned um uh which uh, has kind of a large figure in it with raised hands mm -hmm. uh, that uh the hopi believe might represent a figure associated with the fire clan, I believe, or um, represent, yeah, very, maybe a specific uh, deity, um, um, that figure kind of in their, their history. Um, but beyond that, most of them are, uh, aren't, don't have, have specific enough designs in them to be associated with a particular clan. That was one, that is one um, theory though, is maybe these, uh, the different designs on different shields um, represent the different clans, and uh, it might it might be in some cases, say the one at Batotican, and um, that kind of leads directly into the question of like, well, what was the function of these? Like, why were they doing this? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, are they like billboard sorts of signs? Are they? I mean, uh, yeah, well? that is actually an analogy that's been directly used. Um, we call them billboard panels, where um, some. Um, rock paintings, rock uh, petro petroglyphs are put into hidden places, more private spaces where uh, you're supposed to be not only a few people are kind of going to be able to fit and say this rock crevice or under this boulder, um, you know, very much supposed to be more secretive, more private versus uh, ones like these shields. These are meant, you can see them from a long ways away. Like you're coming up Canyon and you see this big giant white shield figure are these um, on a red rock too? Does that, I mean, yeah, red, red or pink. They're going to stand out. Yeah. So it's like, there's a colorful landscape, but um, uh, most of the shields that I saw were uh, white, um, certainly all white within the uh, Segi Canyon uh, around Navajo National Monument. But uh, others I saw in Utah were, uh, some of them were green. Others, yeah, were white. There were a few that were packed in and those ones weren't quite as visible, but still, they're still large and you could still see them a good ways off. And uh, one particularly uh, striking one in Canyon Lines National Park is that was, uh, they call him All-American Man because um, he's uh, playing with this red, white, and blue. And blue is extremely rare pigment uh, color to be found uh, in Southwestern uh, rock imagery. Uh, very caught, uh, rare to see uh, uh, blue imagery. Um, so clearly it, it, it took some effort to find the pigments and uh, uh, to make, it was important to make this image. Um, but yeah, they're very uh, 
very colorful, they're very, for overall, we're meant to be seen. Um, so as you approach these sites, boom, you spot that, that's, you can't miss it. Um, so they're meant, clearly meant to convey something. And uh, whether that be uh, to the community itself, like the locals that are living there or non-locals that are coming in, mm -hmm. um, whatever their intentions may be, um, probably is sending a message to everyone and the question being, all right, is it singling like identity? Like this is so-and-so clan that lives here. Mm -hmm. um, or is it um, supposed to be more of kind of like a, a warning saying like, hey, look at our big war shield that we have painted here. Don't mess with us. We're prepared. Yeah. We're prepared. We will fight you. And maybe linked to that, um, we know ethnographically that um, Pueblo people, when uh, they were using shields at this time, it would have been buffalo hide shields, but um, mm -hmm. the different designs painted on them were meant to be uh, kind of convey protection upon the warrior themselves um, to make them uh, more skilled or uh, protected in battle or to confuse their enemies with the designs. Um, and so maybe the shield itself has kind of that was meant to have that protective effect on the shield uh, on the cliff dwelling, the community itself. So it was just another kind of line of defense, maybe more of a spiritual line of defense. Like so a ward or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a ward to protect the community, protect the site. Um, wow. Kind of, it's essentially a shield, large, a shield to put across the entire community. Um, just as the warrior would have one, you know, the shield uh -huh. physically, physically protects them, but also maybe spiritually protects them. Um, when they're wearing the shield, um, pointing that shield over the uh, the community. Um, wow. The cliff dwelling may have uh, had a similar similar effect. Um, it probably could have done all of these all of these things. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, there definitely was a focus on putting these um, at these defensive sites at this time, and it's really only up. We only see them being put in rock imagery um, uh, once people move up into these uh, these cliff dwellings. I don't think it's a this a coincidence. Um, well, and I mean, I may be stretching things here, but as you know, someone who is not as deep into this stuff as you are, but I mean, it it strikes me as it would say all of these are the same. If you're someone looking for trouble and you stumble across one and then you come across the next or whatever, you might then think, well, these guys might communicate more regularly. Maybe they have each other's backs or something, which is another protective element across a greater landscape, you know? Yeah. And that that's a perfect segue into kind of uh, one of the research questions I had was uh, um, the placement of the shields themselves is uh, at Segi Canyon, they always seem to be on the right hand side was that happening in other places? And I think I mentioned uh, my survey of shield imagery across the northern southwest, no other region seemed to have a very particular pattern of where they were pointing their shields. They're all making shields, but only in Segi Canyon, where Navajo National Monument is, these, these uh, people living in these cliff dwellings were always pointing their shield on the right side. Um, so that it um, the study did confirm that, yes, this is unique to, this spatial parody is unique to this community, which suggests that, yeah, these communities are, um, these different cliff dwellings were part of some larger shared community um, within Segi Canyon. They might have made, done things differently at each one, 
uh, maybe come from different clans or different groups, maybe even spoke different languages at some of them, but they all at least uh, were making shields the same way and putting them in the exact same spot. Why the right side? I don't think we'll ever know that. I but, mean, are they typically, are they held on their left side or their right side? How? That I don't think we know that. Um, maybe on your left. Yeah. yeah, I mean, in like in medieval and like European stuff, you have your yeah. shield on your left and then your your right yeah. arm is your, you know, lancer or whatever. But yeah. I was just curious, you know. Like yeah, that. so I get, I don't know what, if we're going to know why they're pointing on the right, but it was clearly uh, important to them. And we call that um, when uh, a, a community develops um, a certain way of doing things archaeologically, you know, this year, and we call that a community of practice where it's a, uh, in this community, we do this thing this way, and we teach that to our children, and we share them on our community. And that's one of the things that defines us as this community. Uh, so for Segi Canyon, one of the things we can say that kind of made these people different than their other ancestral Pueblo neighbors was, uh, oh, those are the people, they always put their shields on the right side, um, which shows how uh, rock imagery uh, can be used um, to help kind of delineate or define different groups of people um, and show how, okay, this community, this group of people here uh, um, did things differently than uh, their neighbors, say a few canyon systems over. So in our last episode, um, we talked with Alex Velez about prairie madness and how it's, it's weird to think about things like, you know, sound archeologically, but I mean, it sounds sort of similar. What you're doing here is, is you're taking something that we wouldn't ordinarily think of to think about, right? You know, you're taking the placement of something, which is kind of a weird way of looking at art, maybe, um, to, to try to find cohesion between groups or patterns. Um, I mean, yeah. I've heard some, some people argue that looking at art that has been made on rocks by native folks as cloud gathering, but why do you think it's important to study these things? Well, I think it's um, very important to study these things, uh, these imagery, this iconography within a larger, uh, within the larger landscape context, going back to landscape archaeology. Um, one of the problems that uh, we have, I feel, in archaeology or kind of uh, art history um, is we tend to come at this from a Western perspective and just take the image out of, out of the context, look at the image in isolation. So I compare it to um, kind of go to a Western art museum and or a portrait gallery, and it's each individual painting in its frame, separate from the others. Um, it's kind of own isolated piece. And that's not how, um, rock imagery, pictographs, petroglyphs. Um, Any or, art probably, right? Yeah, but uh, within the Southwest, um, yeah. what's locally known as rock art, um, that's not how it was treated. It was part of a larger landscape, a larger cultural landscape. It's related to um, different features on the landscape, different mountains, canyons, um, villa, uh, communities, shrines. Um, it's tied into a larger network of uh, cultural sites. And if we just take a look at that one image by itself, we lose all that. It's just, yeah, we might be able to look at style or uh, um, if it's a pictograph, if it's painted, maybe what's made, how it's painted, it's color, but we lose all uh, that connection to the 
rest of the site within and the rest of the cultural landscape. So um, one of the issues was uh, looking at these shield figures, um, it's often been done in just this isolated, um, isolated uh, view of like just looking at the imagery itself and not its placement within the larger landscape. And if we had just done that, we wouldn't have realized that, oh, the Sega Canyon, they actually have a very specific way that they do it. And it's not just about the imagery itself, it's about the placement. There's a lot more that goes into uh, making this imagery than just uh, you know preparing something, preparing the paint and then uh, gain a brush and point on the canyon wall. You have to figure out where you're gonna actually place it and by then default where you're not gonna place it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, yeah, looking at rock imagery, rock art um, within this larger context, within the larger landscape context is essential for archeologists to do and to try and kind of divorce ourselves from that Western perspective of looking at imagery in isolation. Um, that's why you might have noticed I very rarely refer to it. I've been using the term rock imagery and not rock art because uh, using rock art just kind of reinforces that Western perspective and some Native uh, communities, uh, I know the Hopi have asked archaeologists, please stop using the term rock art. Because um, to us, it's not art, it's much more important. It's this, this is a science of our ancestors. This is um, imagery our ancestors left for us to remind them of us or show where we have gone in our migration journeys. It's much more, uh, uh, much more important to them than what we might define as art uh, from a Western perspective. And not to say that it isn't visually stunning and beautiful and skillful to make, not to say that it isn't worthy of being art, but um, it might, might not just be appropriate to call it art from in the Western sense. Because mm -hmm. it's much, much more than that. Yeah, it's much more important. It's not seen um, the way that uh, we might look at a lot of art uh, in a, a Western Anglo perspective. So at the end of the day, what do you want people to take away from what you're describing here? Why is it important? Um, how might we think about sites, iconography, artifacts um, in our part of the world in Missouri or? Um... I know uh, there's a lot of uh, petroglyphs, which I, I don't know if I ever defined. Um, petroglyphs are uh, um, rock imagery that's made by removing um, material off the rock surface, so you're carving an image into a rock surface, or you're pecking, or scraping, or braiding, and then a pictograph is one where you're adding a substance to the surface to make an image, so you're adding paint, pigment, clay, um, so there's a, and sometimes you get both, you get a pecked image that then that is painted over, um, but I know Missouri has both pictographs and petroglyphs, and, uh, I would imagine that the same principle applies, that uh, don't view this as just isolated imagery, treat it as you would any artifact um, on an archeological site. It's tied into so much more than just you know, a picture mm -hmm. itself. Um, like where is it being put on the landscape? Like can, what uh, significant things could you see from that? Often um, petroglyph pictograph sites are being placed so that they can orient to see something like a prominent mountain or river or ancestral community. Um, so kind of, yeah, look at, think about like where on the landscape is this being placed in relationship to everything else um, in this cultural landscape. 
what's important about this that you find at the end of the day, the very basis of what this is? Why should we take note of your work? Well, uh, get you to brag on yourself, but this is good work. This is important work. So, um, well, I think it's, uh, it's, I'm certainly not alone in this. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, kind of on the bandwagon of, uh, many, many researchers that, uh, of, uh, rock imagery of iconography that's trying to put it in the larger context. Um, cause I think it helps, uh, to kind of decolonize the way we study, um, this imagery by not focusing on just the image itself, kind of viewing it through our lens. Um, we're trying to do more um, work with indigenous communities, look at their perspectives when we are viewing these spaces um, and understanding the, the reasoning why um, these, what, what is the reason these, uh, this rock imagery was put in these specific spots. And uh, I feel that can inform us so much more often than sometimes trying to decipher, oh, what does it mean? Like that's always, always the question I get asked by um, people interested in uh, quote unquote rock art. It's like, oh, what does it mean? It's like, well, honestly, in most cases we won't know for sure. Um, and uh, descendant communities in some cases can say, oh, we are we pretty sure uh, this, uh, this image refers to um, this per this uh, particular uh, personage or this event or represents this clan, um, but that that isn't always the case. And um, yeah, so often we aren't going to know exactly what it means, but we can get some uh, maybe clues or at least get some general ideas by looking at the larger context of where is this being put in the larger scheme of the cultural landscape. Is this a billboard panel that's most clearly meant to be read by everyone? Like, is it being put at a village or is it being put like at crossroads of like different, uh, like canyons or uh, rivers where like probably different groups of people were meant to come by? And that means it was meant more to be like seen by maybe outsiders, like, hey, you're coming into our region, um, like our turf. Um, or is it meant, is it put in a more private space, like say in a small, you know, in a cave or, um, in a, a rock crevice, somewhere where it's more it's like, no, this was more private, whatever was happening here. Um, this was meant to be only seen by a few people at a time. And um, again, don't know what, may, we might not know what it meant, but we can at least maybe see what its intention was. Was this intended to be private or public? What I really like about your work, um, what like touches me about it, I think is that, you know, with, with your stuff, we can, we can feel that, that anxiety, like it, it, it does a really good job, the combination of you looking at the landscape and where they're putting their homes and the art that they are making at this time, for whatever reason that they're, they're making it, um, it, it shows, you know, an aspect of their humanity that I think that we've all felt, especially within the last two years, you know, that anxiety of like the world has suddenly shifted off its axis and, we don't really know what to do, but we're going to do the things that we can do to make it work um, and survive the best we can. And I think that your work does a really fantastic job. I will certainly say, uh, I mean, these people, uh, they certainly struggle with, uh, like you, exactly like you said, the same feelings um, that we go through, the same fears, hopes um, that uh, we've certainly been struggling through the past few years. 
um, you know, they face diseases too and malnutrition and um, a lot of uncertainties, but they persevered. Their descendants are still here in thriving communities. And yes, they've certainly faced a lot of changes and challenges um, even before colonization. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, also, they, uh, you're right. I mean, it shows just how strong they are as, as human beings. Um, yeah. So I think I am all I'm always inspired when I'm visiting archaeological sites and just showing the larger uh, human story. Um, and it's a, it's a privilege to work uh, in these spaces. So do you see yourself continuing this work or the direction of this work in the future, or um, if um, not, what route do you see yourself heading towards? So I finished this work um, a few years ago. Uh, specifically on shield figures and um, published a few articles, one um, in the journal Kiva, um, which is a Southwestern archeological journal, and then one in the journal ADB, um, which I think, I forget what that stands for, but it's a, it's a smaller journal of the University of Buffalo. Um, and I, I know at least the University of Buffalo one, uh, the article I published with them is uh, publicly available. So if you're more interested, you can go, if you want to read more, that can be easily found. Um, um, so I would say I'm not specifically working on shields anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, that work kind of got put to bed, wrapped up. Um, I am though continuing in the vein of looking at rock imagery, pictographs, petroglyphs within the landscape context. Um, I'm doing a research project on that right now at Petrified Forest National Park. And my larger dissertation work is at Chaco Canyon, looking at the rock imagery there within the landscape context, um, which Chaco is an amazing cultural landscape and a very deliberately built landscape, um, very intentional. People were very making very intentional decisions on where shrines and trails and access points to this canyon were being placed. It was very much a canyon. If you were a visitor to it, um, you were going very much through a choreographed path and um, it was made, I think, to impress, um, make a very a strong impression on people. But uh, the rock imagery there really hasn't been looked at within that equation. Mm -hmm. um, so that's my uh, current dissertation research. Um, so yes, I am continuing this research, but uh, shields are, uh, are pretty much wrapped up right now. Gotcha. So you're going to tilt it to the side and work different angles, which is... Same methods, just different place, different... Uh, uh, different kind of research questions, but same methods. Cool. So one last real question. Um, so if someone wanted to be you when they grow up, how would they go about it? And what advice would you share about how they might start thinking about the world around them? Well, I would definitely get to um, any national park or a national forest or BLM land kind, explore your public lands. Um, these are great places to um, great class outdoor classrooms to learn about um, the history of uh, this landscape of this um, uh, learn about the diverse groups of people that have called um, um, United States home um, in a very deep history um, at that um, I mean that's me personally where I fell in love with archaeology mm -hmm. um, going to the southwest as a kid um, and um, there's multiple parks that uh are have very uh are very specifically geared towards archaeology and a great place to uh, kind of dip your toes in and see if this interests you um 
There's also, I know in some parts of the country, volunteer projects that you can jump on to uh, help with archeological projects, um, digs or surveys, or in the work I've done up at Bears Ears National Monument, doing um, helping with preservation work. We help build cattle fences around um, sensitive archeological sites so cows couldn't get into them anymore and do damage. Um, we built uh, uh, fencing projects around um, these sites and um, there's a lot of opportunities to be engaged with um, helping preserve uh, our uh, greater cultural history. Um, I will do a personal shout out. If you get a chance, please come to Petrified Forest National Park. Um, it's an amazing place. One of the kind of lesser known gems I feel in the national park system. Um, we're known internationally for um, our petrified wood, um, fossil, our uh, fossil deposits going back to the Triassic period. Um, well over 200 million years ago. Um, some of the earliest dinosaur fossils are from here. Um, but we are an amazing paleontology park, but we are also have amazing archaeology, which I did talk too much about um, on, this, uh, on this talk, but um, um, we also have ancestral Pueblo and um, uh, petroglyphs, probably one of the largest concentrations of petroglyphs in the country um, is within the Petrified Forest National Park. And we have the really rich, uh, more recent history with um, homesteading and work by, done by the Civilian Conservation Corps. And we're the only park that has a section of Route 66 passing through it. So we have um, some really uh, exceptional Americana preserved at uh, Petrified Forest. So if you're ever in Arizona and so say you're going to the Grand Canyon, stop by Petrified Forest for a day. Um, it's, very, there's, it's very accessible. Um, to the public uh, kind of with everyone uh, level of difficulty for kind of everyone. There's handicapped accessible spots and then you can go, you know, backcountry backpacking if you want to. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Max, for giving us time today to talk and think about your work. For anyone interested in learning more about your shield, field, shield figure project, reach out to me and I can help you get those resources so you can read all about Max's wonderful work. Thank you again. For anyone who liked hearing Max talk about his work and with Southwestern iconography, um, you're welcome to stay tuned to future podcasts in our series. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ern. To become a member, please visit our website, www.mohumanities.org and click the join today tab in the upper right-hand portion of the screen.